This is Southern Discomfort. The labor movement in the South was dealt a heavy blow in April when workers at an Amazon fulfillment center in Bessemer, Alabama, voted roughly two to one against unionizing with the retail, wholesale, and department store union. The loss came on the heels of other recent unsuccessful attempts to unionize Volkswagen and Nissan plants in Tennessee and Mississippi. But the stakes seemed higher in Bessemer. Leading the labor campaign at the Alabama warehouse were black workers who risked losing their jobs to speak out against one of the world's most powerful and fastest-growing corporations in the least unionized region in the country. Workers described grueling conditions in the warehouse where they say Amazon placed productivity above their safety. The union struggle in Bessemer captured the attention of the media, who lavished mostly friendly coverage upon the workers' struggle and garnered the support of public officials like President Joe Biden. If you were only watching the campaign online from afar, you might have expected a huge union victory. Folks in the South knew better. Southern states continue to supply corporations like Amazon with a steady source of cheap and coercive labor. It is little wonder that union density in the region remains the lowest in the nation. And yet, it is the region that could determine the future of labor in America. To be clear, the RWDSU made plenty of miscalculations that contributed to the Bessemer blowout. However, the union struggle at the Amazon Fulfillment Center was never going to be a fair fight. While Amazon publicly extolled the value of black lives, the corporation unleashed a ruthless and well-financed anti-union campaign upon its majority black workers in the lead-up to the union election. The company barraged workers with disinformation and lies about the union. Meanwhile, union avoidance experts charging Amazon thousands of dollars per day held captive audience meetings in an effort to turn workers against the union. Amazon even tried to turn the entire Bessemer community against the union by threatening to withdraw the fulfillment center, a major source of jobs and revenue, out of the area. Joining me now to dissect the Bessemer union drive and the importance of social movement unionism in the effort to organize rank-and-file workers in the South, and workers of color in particular, is Saladin Mohammed. Mohammed is a retired international rep for the United Electrical Workers Union and a founding member of both Black Workers for Justice and the Southern Workers Assembly. Before we jump in and analyze the union campaign in Bessemer, I think we should recognize the struggles of the workers themselves at the Amazon warehouse. Can you talk about what the rank-and-file workers in Bessemer were able to accomplish despite an all-out assault waged by Amazon? Well, I think what they achieved uh, was opening up a new period of support for organizing labor in the South. The attraction uh, to the Bessemer campaign occurred across the U.S. and in parts of the uh, work, work, workers' working class struggle. The emergence of a workers' struggle led by, by black workers 
during a period of national black resistance uh, shown by uh, the Black Lives Matter movement against police murders and state-sanctioned violence against black, brown, indigenous peoples was a testament of what a sentiment, a movement for black liberation could have on the emergence of labor struggles, particularly uh, in communities and workplaces that have uh, significant numbers of black workers, and certainly uh, where the black workers are a majority and the communities that they live in are a majority. So I think that was uh, been a very important development that one does not begin to understand uh, looking purely through a union campaign lens. Obviously, this campaign taking on one of the largest corporations uh, in the world showed the courage of these workers in Bessemer and of the communities that supported them uh, because uh, what was at stake, particularly promoted during the anti-union, Amazon's anti-union campaign, were jobs uh, that paid uh, more than the average worker uh, in Alabama and certainly in the Bessemer of Birmingham area, and also this threat uh, that the plant might close, affecting uh, the economy of the city uh, and the surrounding areas. This was the challenge uh, that these workers uh, were facing. So this was courageous. However, going into this campaign, uh, recognizing Uh, just the size of this corporation, the weakness of a wider basis uh, for unionizing or building a movement, an infrastructure, if we call it the infrastructure of a movement throughout the Amazon Corporation uh, so that the campaign uh, becomes bigger than a one-facility campaign of that, that this was a tactical and possibly even a strategic weakness in the decision to take on uh, Amazon from the union's perspective or from a union perspective. But there uh, emerged throughout Amazon the beginnings of new committees in different places. Uh, New contacts uh, have been made, particularly coming off of the solidarity actions that were organized across the country uh, in February and in March. The uh, opportunity to follow up on these new contacts uh, now exists and has begun uh, in several places toward forming organizing committees that can uh, develop the actual infrastructure to begin 
to develop a more Amazon-wide uh, strategy. This, I think, is has been, you know, uh, the important development. But I think that's some of the things that uh, I think opens up a new period, not only of organizing in Amazon, but organizing in other industries, particularly uh, in the South, uh, where unions are the weakest and where there's really a history of low wages, uh, worker divisions around uh, race, uh, immigration, status. And so I think we have to look at how to fashion a strategy around these new developments. Were you at all surprised by the results of the election? Or were you prepared for a defeat given the strong anti-union sentiments here in the South and the difficulty that most workers here face organizing their workplaces? Well, was prepared, you know, for one could call it a defeat. I guess, you know, you have to say that. But, you know, for a stolen election, for a stolen vote, yeah. Um, Yes, you know, again, um, looking at the odds uh, from the standpoint of how widely uh, an inside Amazon campaign, you know, we felt is needed. Um, and so, you know, we, we saw that that the chances were that the union would lose, lose this vote. We never tried to project that. You know, we always tried to project the struggle is to win. And the winning features, you know, was the development of a movement, a greater learning about Amazon, about uh, its anti-union uh, strategies, about how the how the industry uh, is operated, the surveillance, uh, and those things. We we tried to project to show uh, what the workers uh, are up against, you know, so that a defeat, you know, uh, don't uh, simply look at what some might call union mistakes or union errors or or some other things. If you know, they obviously got to be looked at, you know, and talked about. But the odds of any a union organizing Amazon one workplace at a time without a wider national strategy uh, would not have better chances necessarily uh, than the RWDSU had. Can you speak to the perspective of union organizing versus union elections? Do we sometimes put too much stock in election victories at the expense of the hard work of organizing? When we look at the the 1930s, uh, when anti-union laws, you know, basic worker right laws uh, did not exist the late 20s and, and, and the early 30s. And you saw organizations that were formed that were not unions, but they were kind of, you know, progressive or leftist organizations that had a view uh, that the working class needed to be organized 
in these core industries and uh, in order for uh, there to be some measure of power uh, to make uh, important changes. And so you had uh, actions like even in the Flint struggle in 34, which were workers organized, you know, in a sit-down strike, uh, which they organized, the rank and file organized, to really become part of the of the UAW. And you had, you know, uh, this example uh, in a number of major uh, industries, the steel workers organizing committee, textile workers, you, you had, had that. And this was kind of organized by the radical elements who saw uh, organizing unions as a part of the class struggle, if you will. And the organizational forms, uh, obviously, the move toward unionization uh, was a stage of, uh, of that movement. Now, I, I raised that brief history to say that organizing in the South is going to need, need a similar kind of strategy, building a kind of an infrastructure movement or a social movement uh, that's, that's really taking on industries and, and, and therefore one might say on capital in a way uh, that mobilizes working people families, children, everybody, you know, is a part of this uh, this so- social movement to organize labor. So we in the Southern Workers' Assembly, uh, we were looking at what this campaign could develop in that direction of creating a network uh, that begins the process of building an infrastructure uh, in key industries, including Amazon, uh, that could foster a real, real movement to organize labor in the South. We've talked about this in terms of what it means to having a strategy uh, that relates and highlights a union campaign as a battle, as a front that produces some developments that got to now be worked with and developed uh, uh, from being spontaneous to more intentional, more planned. The solidarity actions around the country have been contacting the Southern Workers Assembly about participating in the, uh, the Southern Workers School. And we agreed that probably the same uh, training and information that we would be, what we will be providing for the Southern Solidarity uh, Actions Committees will be beneficial for organizing workers' assemblies in other places across the U.S. You know, we, we, we think, for example, that this Bessemer campaign really needed the early support of the official labor movement, the Air Favel, or the change to win, you know, et cetera, to rise up and to mobilize support to show these workers, these black majority workers, that labor in its 
majority is behind this struggle, etc. This, uh, we believe, would have been, and not that it's not too late, or not that it's too late, but it would have been a very important contribution to uh, encouraging the unity of the workers against the system of systemic racism uh, that divides them largely uh, from black workers and to create divisions among the working class. When this doesn't happen, uh, there could be a real feeling that somehow these struggles uh, led by by the black working class is not as important uh, to the labor movement as other campaigns and struggles. These are the kind of opportunities that labor can't afford to continue to miss as the U.S. and global economy and, and, and the technological innovations and changes that have been made uh, and the crisis in the economy that's even creating a greater desperation among the employers and corporations the labor movement can't afford to miss these opportunities that would be pushing back against the Trumpism, against uh, the divisions uh, that also uh, led uh, to the the January 6th attack on, 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 on the Capitol. I think we have to really see the importance uh, that this campaign has why labor has to in hopefully uh, discussing and summing up this experience uh, have to really see some of the larger questions uh, that have historically uh, divided the working class and also uh, that (laughs) uh, sometimes divides the labor movement in, in, into of itself. This is a period now we're, we're hoping and, and, and trying to contribute to where there's going to be a major discussion about organizing, a major discussion, you know, about organizing the South, a major discussion about, about black workers. Uh, and the important role that they play in, or can play in organizing labor, particularly in the South. That, that, that's important. Hopefully your, your article uh, uh, can you know, contribute to uh, this kind of a, a discussion. But the rank and file has got to play a major role uh, in promoting this discussion uh, in their local unions, in their regional and national conventions and structures, so that it becomes a popular discussion, reflecting a new period emerging uh, for organizing labor. 
Public support for unions is at a higher point now than we have seen in 15 years. During the Black Lives Matter protests and the coronavirus pandemic, we saw workers, including meat packers, health workers, even highly paid basketball players, stop work on their jobs. Do you think it's become easier for workers to take a stand in the workplace, even though there are obviously tremendous forces that are aligned against them? Well, I don't know how about how easy it is going to be. I think how this is promoted as a tactic of power, a tactic to exercise power, and not a tactic, you know, to uh, mainly shame the system. I think shame in the system is very important. Uh, and I think that the strikes of the athletes, you know, played an important role in shaming the system. However, it's, it's important to prepare, to, to, to actually prepare uh, uh, and not, you know, to rely on a spont spont spontaneous efforts. The athletes, uh, you know, they need all of the, uh, you know, the praises uh, that, that we can um, provide, uh, but they were largely spontaneous and they identify themselves with the movement like the Black Lives Matter movement, you know, which again, demands, particular demands that more reflected uh, the demands of the black working class, which is the overwhelming majority of black people, that these demands have to be sharper, you know, so that the responses might uh, be more widespread in terms of of tenant strikes and worker strikes and and those those kinds of things. So no, I don't think it's necessarily going to be easier. Again, I think uh, that if we're not you know working to build an infrastructure, particularly targeting some of these uh, core uh, industries like Amazon and auto and meatpacking uh, and hosp hospitals and, and those kinds of uh, core industries, you know, unless we are really uh, developing a strategy to concentrate and to bore into these elements, then I think, you know, what, what, what we would hope could uh, be an example of, of exercising workers' power as a social movement around some working class wide demands, uh, national health care, for example, community control of uh, a police, cutting the military budget significantly, you know, to use for social needs, et cetera, demands that require collective power to be mobilized and exercised. We got to prepare for that. And we have to think uh, in those terms, you know, about not only being able to enter into uh, an agreement, a contractual agreement uh, with corporations, which is a part of what the fight is in terms of reforms, uh, but uh, how we understand these struggles must seek to alter the power relations 
uh, between the working working class and the corporations and the and the government that protects those corporations, etc. And um, again, I think how we begin to describe uh, campaigns like Bessema and and Medicare for all and and these kinds of things, you know, ha- has to be a shape you know, with that kind of perspective. And I don't think that that represents some kind of extreme, abstract, idealistic, you know, point of view, uh, particularly when you see, when people begin to understand the pandemic, you know, like people will be left to die because the failure of the government to, to timely act when it became aware of the deadliness of this virus and that political football uh, was involved around this question uh, when it failed to even uh, show that the impacts were disproportionately affecting black people, brown people, you know, uh, indigenous people, you know, then people will really begin to understand the level of power that has to begin has to be built, uh, and what that power must must seek to do about trying to transform the system that we that we live under. So, this period uh, is an opportune period, uh, but it's going to really, really require kind of a unity of of the many small and desperate uh, forces. Uh, including the trade union movements, workers' centers, and the like, to be combined uh, into a more social justice or social movement unionism that has a, a, a program that really speaks to the needs of the larger working class. Some people have this perception that if things get so bad, maybe that will be enough to convince legislators to pass something like Medicare for All. Well, we're in the midst of a global pandemic that has claimed the lives of nearly 600,000 people in the U.S., and we still don't have guaranteed health care. I think some of the same people who thought that public goods like health care would rise up out of the ashes are now coming to the realization that we can't shortcut the tremendous amount of work that will have to be done in order to bring about transformative social change. What do you think? Again, I I think, you know, that there's a tendency to measure periods of struggle by electoral periods. And, you know, when we we do, do that, I think, you know, we either underestimate and sometimes overestimate, you know, what the potential of our movement is the Med- Medicare for all the strikes around COVID or strikes around employer companies providing PPE and hazardous pay and paid medical leave, etc. Again, they were very important demands, but the question of whether or not or one of the major demands of strikes is around Medicare for all. 
And again, that's not going to be spontaneous. I mean, there's been a a growing movement uh, for Medicare for all among the trade unions. Just imagine if the trade unions called for Medicare for all strikes, one-day strikes, two-day strikes, rolling strikes, what that could actually mean for the pressure to pass Medicare for all. These stimulus bills going up into uh, the trillions and the multi-trillions, you know, when you talk about uh, what went to the corporations, we, we, we begin to see that this system, this government taxing the corporations, that Medicare for all could be passed, could be supported, and those kinds of things. I think that that demand uh, has to be raised in the kind of coordinated uh, strategy that goes beyond only lobbying legislators. Uh, Only lobbying legislators uh, without action, I don't think raises uh, the demand for Medicare for all as being a life and death demand. And so again, yeah, you're right. It's going to take uh, some time, but we have to be intentionally raising awareness or consciousness and positioning the organization of workers as a social movement to carry out uh, this possibility of really actually challenging the the operation of the uh, system so that it takes the working class seriously, if nothing else. You recently talked about how the South is in need of a mass labor organizing effort akin to Operation Dixie of the 1940s. Can you talk more about that particular campaign and why you think the Bessemer Union struggle shows how the time is right to organize the South? The organization, you know, right after World War II, you know, people started working, soldiers started coming home, experiencing maybe even a sharper discrimination in what they left, particularly from the South, et cetera. You know, the the apparent uh, nature of the South in the um, uh, in the national economy, Operation Dixie, which took place in the late 1940s, right around the time that uh, the Taft-Hartley Act, pretty much anti-labor act, uh, was passed, including this section of 14B, which was called right to work laws, which really was developed uh, in order to uh, strengthen or to support the state's rights movement, the racist movement, uh, particularly, you know, that existed in the South that would challenge national laws and policies through states' rights. So Operation Dixie, pretty much a CIO or uh, this was before the merger of the uh, AFL and the CIO campaign to organize 
uh, in the South, uh, probably one of its, um, one of the major uh, industries uh, was the textile industry, which was still in the late 1940s, primarily majority white. The 34 uh, major strike of the textile workers were was majority white workers in the textile industry. The organizing really did not take up the uh, the struggle against against racism and did not try to organize industries that were a majority black workers. You had the kind of early organizing that went up into the uh, 40s uh, of the tobacco worker industry, which were was a majority black, uh, overwhelmingly black industries. And so, you know, there was this weakness, you know, again, of not wanting to appear to be giving uh, some level of power and support uh, uh, for black workers during that time. But the important aspect of it was that the CIO took it up, a, a federation took it up and made uh, at least uh, in its initiation Operation Dixie to be popular, you know, including a cultural movement by forces like Pete Seeger and others. But it failed. The Wagner Act that had been passed around 34, 35 kind of became the foundation of the National Labor Relations Act in terms of uh, a certain uh, protections for uh, efforts to organize a union. Uh, it seemed like Operation Dixie was relying more on on the Wagner Act than it relied on its early uh, mobilization uh, that really created the conditions that even uh, forced uh, Roosevelt into signing the Wagner Act. That is the struggles, you know, of the 20s and the 30s, you know, where you had these rank and file and left organizations that formed to deal with industrial unionism that broke up in, in many ways craft unionism where workers were unionized around their crafts. Uh, and this still created a real separation uh, among the workers and certainly isolated uh, black workers who were not really a part of the main crafts. The 20s and 30s, you know, united the workers that led to uh, this reform, you know, the national, I mean, the Wagner Act and then eventually uh, the National Labor Relations Act. It seemed like the same infrastructure, the same uh, rank and file organization and the involvement of the left, the radical forces, you know, in the trade unions uh, was non-existent in a serious way uh, in Operation Dixie. And again, Operation Dixie, you know, was 
you know, taking place during the the kind of beginnings, you know, of the emergence of the uh, of the McCarthy period, this very, you know, re- re- repressive period, you know, almost Trumpism probably, you know, drew drew a lot from that from that period. So it was a very difficult period, I think, you know, in organizing. We, we sometimes uh, forget about uh, the history that allowed, you know, labor to uh, make advances in difficult times. I think we need a new kind of Operation Dixie uh, in terms of the collaboration of unions and left and progressive organizations around a strategy to organize the South. And that strategy uh, has to also place in the picture that the South is a a strategic region of the U.S. and global economy or U.S. and global capital. The South, you know, as a region has one of the highest concentrations of foreign direct investments in auto and, you know, electronics, other key industries in the South. And so we have to understand what organizing and building power in this region, working class power in this region, aligned with the power of the black masses that that that, that whose conditions of underdevelopment uh, and lack of qualitative connections to uh, institutions that we need, you know, for our health and for our education and those kinds of things, this would be uh, seen as a a campaign that has not only national but international importance, uh, and it creates the possibility, at least in in my thinking and the thinking of of a number of others, that it could generate a kind of more militant, a national U.S. national uh, labor movement and an international a labor movement. I mean, that, that's what the South represents in the global economy. And that's not, that's not often talked about, or I don't hear it talked about ever uh, in terms of uh, an analysis of the, uh, the conditions that uh, organizing in the South uh, could impact. I don't know what it, uh, what it could be called, but I think the intent of a federation uh, taking up this question of organizing in the South uh, is what we need to uh, emerge in this period. Saladin Mohammed is a retired international rep for the United Electrical Workers Union and a founding member of both Black Workers for Justice and the Southern Workers Assembly. Music for Southern Discomfort was recorded by Blue Dot Sessions. I'm Jonathan Michaels.